Orphan twins, a brother and sister, lived together happily on a beautiful island in the South Pacific. As they grew older, the sister attracted the attention of a stranger who came to the island. He wanted to marry her, but she didn't feel that way and wasn't interested. Her brother loved her very much and tried to protect her from the frustration and angst of the stranger as he found it hard to move on. They fought restlessly, and during the struggle, the stranger released an arrow from his bow. This arrow hit the girl, and she died. The boy carried his sister's body back home and buried her. He mourned for weeks by her grave, until a strange-looking plant began to grow there. Not paying it much attention, he continued to grieve and to hang his head in sorrow. Eventually, a year passed, and the boy woke one morning to see a rat chewing on the odd little plant's root system that grew above his sister's grave. The rat died shortly after consuming this plant, and so the boy assumed it was poison. He had not been able to overcome his twin sister's death, and out of a sadness he just could not shake, he decided he wanted to die too. Assuming the plant had killed the rat, he began eating it, but instead of dying, he fell into a state of deep relaxation and forgot his troubles and unhappiness. So he came back often to eat the magic root, eventually passing its healing use on to others. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller, a muse, and a lover of nature on every level. This episode's all about intoxicated animals and chemicals and even a little bit of brain function. Altering our minds with substances is not a human-only thing to do. It's been happening in the animal kingdom since the beginning of time. We've lived alongside poisons and hallucinogens and other colorful things for just about forever. Elephants like the marula tree. The marula is a tree indigenous to India, and it produces intoxicating flowers that can sometimes start to ferment out in the wild. Now granted, they don't really get drunk off this, but they found a more behavior-altering version later on. Humans in India make an alcoholic drink out of marula. It's a tropical thing. And since the elephants there liked and were used to eating the flowers that the drink was made from, they recognized the scent when it was fermenting in vats in the human-populated areas. So it drew them out of the forest and into town, where they invaded the liquor stash. It wasn't pretty. You have to imagine a giant, drunk elephant with tusks coming at you and ransacking houses and farms. They've also been known to drink the rice wines that people are making when they're in the process of fermenting. They'll recognize the smell of fermenting beer. Elephants love getting drunk, and it's pretty dangerous. Now, the booze isn't the only reason they attack people in towns in India. More of their habitat is being taken by people as our, our population grows, and that's actually the reason behind most elephant attacks. But there are times when they're out getting drunk and acting worse than any frat house party you've ever seen. When you see a drunk elephant, you'd better get out of the way. 
They like their alcohol and they are big. Other animals who like getting wasted on liquor are the varvet monkeys at St. Kitts in the Caribbean. Most people know about these guys. They became pretty popular when somebody did a documentary about it. I forgot who filmed this, but it was really interesting. They started out eating fermented sugar cane, and then they started stealing cocktails from tourists at the beaches. All these creatures seem to know what fermentation smells like, and they enjoy it. Most of them drink moderately, but there are a few who get pretty wasted. You can find them laid out on the beaches and under trees, passed out by the piers with their cocktail cups that they stole. But these are more extreme examples. I don't think these animals would have turned into drunks if it hadn't been for humans taking these substances and fermenting them on a larger and more concentrated scale. We do tend to make natural things way stronger than they are in the wild. But that doesn't mean all animals are innocent either. There's a lichen that grows in the Canadian Rockies. It's a narcotic, and it's pretty rare. And big-horned sheep will go hunting for it. They go to great lengths to find it. It only grows in these obscure, dangerous-to-get-to areas, but they'll go hunt it down just to get a good hit. The Amanita muscaria mushroom, reindeer love it. We call reindeer caribou here in America. The fact that reindeer regularly trip on mushrooms could possibly be one of the inspirations behind the story of why Santa's reindeer fly. Amanita muscaria is that really popular-looking red-capped mushroom with the white spots or specks on it that you see in the Mario uh, video games. The reindeer that eat these mushrooms are in Siberia, by the way, where it's cold. And why is Santa's suit red and white? It's so easy for me to go down rabbit holes. I find ridiculous correlations. <laughs> but animals do seek out recreation. Not all animals are workaholics either. Some are. Ants. A lot of insects. But a lot of mammals, especially in more temperate climates, like to chill out and make things easier on themselves. Often. They seem to take vacations once in a while. If you really pay attention, you'll find these animals being curious and playful and, and doing drugs. Birds fly south for the winter escape in the harsh environments that demand more work to survive. And they stop along the way. They meet up in groups, get social for a while, like they're at a rest stop or at a bar, and then they head down to their final destinations. I love the way birds correlate to human behavior. We're so much alike in so many ways. Little red-throated hummingbirds prefer to fly all the way down to Mexico for their winter vacations. Dolphins will harass pufferfish to get them to puff up and release their poisons, tetrodotoxin, to get a little elevated. Copy roots grow in South America. It's a hallucinogenic plant that jaguars and other big wildcats absolutely love. They act like huge house kitties on catnip. Capuchin monkeys have always liked getting high off a species of uh, hallucinogenic millipedes. They don't actually kill them either. They'll just make them mad and, and they release their poisons. We all like feeling good. 
having a little recreational time, taking a vacation. And just like humans, in the animal kingdom there are drunks, and then there are those who can handle themselves with moderation. The similarities are really insane. Now I'm not advocating everybody get up and go do drugs. Absolutely not. I've just always found it so interesting. And I was reminded of it the other day when I was watching some bees flying around my wine while I was sitting out on the porch. Bees will actually get drunk. You can see them lying on their backs with their little legs up, half passed out on banisters. It's pretty bizarre. And when an insect or an animal figures out that it can hallucinate or enjoy the throes of drunkenness, it will go seek that drug out and do it again. What I've never been able to figure out, though, about any of this is why. It doesn't matter if it's an animal or a human. Why can some of us do it in moderation and stop whenever we want to, and others have a really hard time with certain substances? I drink alcohol. I have most of my adult life. I've taken acid. I've done mushrooms, cocaine, mescaline, and I've smoked weed. I've smoked a cigarette occasionally, and I've never had any kind of really strong, uncontrollable urge to keep doing any of those things, but I have with one thing, and that was pain meds. I got addicted to pain medication after one of my surgeries, and I got myself off the pain meds alone with nobody around, actually out of sheer embarrassment for getting hooked on them in, in the first place. I wrote about that in uh, one of my books, Daughter of Sonic Anarchy. It's on my website. I do understand the hardships of addiction, but I've always wanted to know what makes this person capable of doing something mind-altering and this person not. I'm genuinely interested in that. Because we all have addictions. Some of us just have different ones. Sugar is an addiction I have a seriously hard time with. Some people have compared sugar with heroin, but I think that's a completely different animal. I used to work in a rehab center, and I've watched people go through the withdrawals from heroin. It's not pretty. I've never seen anyone who quit sugar go through that kind of hell. They might be psychologically stressed for a while, but it's an entirely different kind and feel of addiction. Some addictions are more dangerous than others. Some are more illegal than others, which causes even more problems on top of the actual addiction. I don't think it's fair to compare any of these because they all exist in a separate space. Behavioral addictions are a real thing. Shopping, gambling, depression, eating disorders. When you start to think about all these things and how different they are, really start to think about them, they begin to converge into one, and it all has to do with the brain. Now, when I took phlebotomy, it was basically a boot camp in cellular activity. You study about blood cells and all that blood-related stuff, yes, but you also dive into the fact that we're all basically walking sacks of chemicals, cells, making structures, hormones, neurons, and all of these things have incredible sensitivity to every single thing that we put in our bodies, 
and every single thing that we're exposed to outside, therefore dictating how we behave, how we feel, and how we function. There are a lot of theories about why certain people have a harder time with certain addictions than others, and there's no formula for how to heal or treat addiction because the reason behind a person's addiction is going to be based on entirely that person's lifestyle, diet, history of depression or behavior, even DNA and heredity. So what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for somebody else. I wholeheartedly believe that depression is an addiction. And I believe that a lot of addictions have a lot to do with the activity in our brains and the fact that brain health is largely ignored. I'm going to make up a person. Brooke. I like that name. When Brooke develops a habit, it works like this. Let's say every morning Brooke wakes up. The first things she does is make a pot of coffee, sit down at her computer, and check her email. There's this guy she's been talking to online. They've exchanged a few emails and photos. They've talked a little bit. They've texted a little bit. And the first thing that's on her mind in the morning is him, the look of his face, the last thing he said to her. She wonders about his routines and This is occupying her mind every single morning. It becomes a habit. And it doesn't take long to become a habit because it's the kind of thing that produces a euphoria. Brooke's brain is producing pleasure chemicals, and she's literally getting high off of it. The pituitary gland releases a cocktail of hormones. The hypothalamus releases dopamine, which is a big deal. And then there's norepinephrine. Brooke wants a dose of this every morning, probably all day long, but especially in the morning since she's been making a habit of looking for it in her email. Of course, she isn't realizing anymore that this drugged feeling is not in her email box. It's in her head. And that sets her up for a really quick forming habit. Now, the brain wants to turn this into an automated thing. Your brain likes to power down and turn things that we do often into something automated and easy so that it can reserve its energy and focus on other things that might need a little more attention. Brain is a workaholic. It's got a lot to do. So it will actually grow new neuron pathways that support the ease of this automated response, thus forming a habit. We call it a habit. The brain calls it necessary automation. So no matter if it's taking an illegal substance or if it's procrastinating or if it's simply focusing on depressive things and depression or if it's something like overworking even or workaholism, the habit is physically etched in the brain as an automated function And it's set to happen every single day, no matter what other ideas we might have. It's something that we've turned into a tangible thing that happens on the nail when we've scheduled it to. We've successfully scheduled a habit. Brooke's habit just happens to be a little more emotional, which is even harder to break if she ever wants to, because it's giving her a chemical high. This is a big reason why addictions are so hard to break. 
depending on how good your brain is at etching that automated task in your head and scheduling it to happen, you're going to experience that craving. And on a side note, this is the behavioral science behind successful marketing, but that's another podcast. (laughs) So when we want to break a habit or an addiction, the first thing to do is concentrate on your brain health and your body health. Health. Because if your brain is not functioning healthy, it's going to be even harder to deprogram it. It's not working right. This is why people with serious eating disorders end up in hospitals and usually can't get better by themselves. They've deprived the brains of fats, which will kill off the brain slowly, and they really can't think realistically anymore. What you're introducing into your body matters because what's getting released in your body and the way your brain is functioning depends on what kind of chemicals it's getting. I'm trying not to get too complicated here. I'm not going to go into waking up and feeding cells and hormones. Just get some good fats in your body and get a lot of sleep. That's all you got to remember at first. Good fats, good sleep. The second thing to do is to make yourself aware that your brain has scheduled this habit for you as an automated task. When you realize that, it's going to be easier to change. Brooke realizes that she's put her emotions into autopilot and is pretty much playing a slot machine every morning with her email to see what comes up. It's a habit. The third thing to do is give yourself a high-quality distraction. Every time Brooke feels the urge to immediately check her email and see if he's written, she stops, she freezes, acknowledges what's happening, And she's chosen a distraction to switch over to immediately. The desire to check the email is the signal to stop. And the distraction is the switchover. Let's say she's chosen to light candles and and turn on some music and do some yoga. And let her mind just wrap itself around waking up and going over ideas of what she wants to do that day. She's forcibly making a new habit and replacing the one that she doesn't want being at the forefront anymore. And she'll do this every morning until those neurons in her brain have had time to develop a new path of automation. And this yoga routine becomes her new thing every morning. Doesn't mean she's never going to check her email again hoping he sends her a letter, but it's weakening that desire a little more every day until it's not going to be the only thing that's driving her through the day anymore. The habit won't be gone entirely because it's encoded in Brooke's brain. But now she has more control over it. This can be done with things that are simple cravings, things that are a little more emotion-based, and don't have, you know, strong withdrawal symptoms or anything. And it works on animals, too. You just might need to help them out with some uh, guidance a little bit. Dog training utilizes distraction. There's a million things that we can get addicted to or become consumed with in our heads. Sometimes we might want to keep those habits if they're not hurting us or anybody else, and we're able to enjoy them in moderation, and we're aware of them. But sometimes there might be something that we want to stop doing, 
distraction and forming a high-quality habit in place of the one that we want more control over is a very powerful way of doing it. This has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I want to thank my strongest, most generous supporters this morning. William Bishop, Chris Nolan, Arnold Bloom, Bruce Presson, Robin Umber, Yvonne Ragland, and Sheila McGregor. Thank you for your continued support and keeping this show running. Thank you to those who have hit the tip jar this week. I am incredibly grateful, and I wish everybody a great weekend.